The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show is pre-recorded. Everyday Wealth is produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky. Ms. Chatsky is not an employee or client of the firm. She receives fixed cash compensation as host and for related activities, and therefore has an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everydaywealth. The 2022 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed by the firm, technology spending, staff diversity, succession planning, and other metrics. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2022 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Edelman Financial Engine's Everyday Wealth with personal finance expert, Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky, and welcome to Everyday Wealth. Over the last decade, you may have heard someone, maybe someone on Wall Street, use the phrase, cash is trash. And that was because of the zero interest rate policy set by the Federal Reserve. For years following the financial crisis, cash yielded essentially zero, nothing. So you weren't being paid anything to hold cash. In fact, after factoring out inflation, you were losing money if you held it. So hence the phrase, cash is trash. Or maybe we should say cash was trash because it's not really true anymore. To date, the Federal Reserve has increased short-term interest rates nine times over the last 12 months. About a year ago, short-term rates were zero. As we tape this show, they are up to 4.75%, which means you are finally earning some decent money on your cash. Yields on cash equivalent investments are as high as they've been in more than a decade. So is cash king? Once again, that, by the way, another colloquial phrase for businesses, it refers to positive cash flow and overall financial health. For individuals like you and me, it describes times when it's advantageous to hold a large percentage of your portfolio is cash. For example, cash may be king for you when the stock market is going down and you're holding on to a sizable cushion or when there are investment opportunities to seize and you've got the cash to do it. But despite the fact that we are earning money on our cash right now, the reality is it's still not quite enough to keep pace with inflation. So today we're going to ask the question, is cash trash? Is it king? Is it somewhere in between? And to help us answer it, let's welcome back Isabel Barrow to the show. Isabel is a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines. She's going to help us sort through the important role that cash plays in any financial plan. And later, we'll talk through some of the recent and dismaying bank news, the recent failures in regional banks, and what that means for the markets, the economy, and you. Isabel, hey, thanks for being here. Always great to see you. Hey, Jane. Great to see you too, and great to be back on the show today. When I say cash, what does that mean in the context of your work, in the context of investments and financial planning? Right. So we, I think we, when you say cash, like what comes to my mind at least is like the bills in your wallet. But in investment terms, cash is really much broader of a term, and it's used to describe 
any and all asset classes that are cash-like. And that's things like, yes, you know, your bills, right? That still counts in physical currency. But cash is also things like savings accounts or checking accounts. We also term that as cash. Um, Short-term CDs, certificates of deposit, money market funds, Treasury bill, one-year treasury bills, um, and other similar investments to that, we use the term cash equivalents. As uh, you know, you use that term earlier, and that's those are the types of investments we would deem as cash equivalent. That means basically a short-term investment with little to no fluctuation in value, and importantly, also pays you some interest. So let's just tackle the question that I asked a few minutes ago. I mean, in your book, is cash trash? Is it king? Is it somewhere in between? Right. I think it's the answer to the question is somewhat nuanced because it's probably a little bit of both and a little bit of neither. Because, you know, ultimately it is important to remember that cash is an asset class. And it is important to hold a certain amount of your wealth in cash for security. And to a certain extent as well, cash can represent freedom. I think where you're going with that answer is maybe emergency savings, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that emergency fund is one of the core components of a well-built financial plan. So having that emergency fund, having cash reserves, and that really needs to be kind of at the forefront of thinking about your financial planning is building that emergency fund. And the emergency fund, that should be an account that is entirely separate from your other, you know, your flow-through, checking, operating account. It needs to be a separate fund in which you're holding money that you can access or tap into really, really quickly if you need to. And like the name implies, it's money that's used to cover emergencies, you know, something that comes up, a future mishap, an accident, you know, an unexpected healthcare expense, um, a loss of income potentially. So your emergency fund becomes your own personal sort of financial safety net, right? And that's why we believe that it's one of the most important pieces of building your financial plan. You and I've talked about emergency funds before, and I've heard you say you should really keep anywhere from three to 24 months worth of cash around on hand. It's such a wide range. I mean, if I'm thinking, well, okay, three months, that's pretty easy. 24 months, that's a lot of money. And shouldn't some of that money be working for me? Well, yeah. I mean, it's a wide range, certainly. Um, How much you should have really depends on your situation. There are two main factors you've got to think about. You've got to think about your expenses, number one. What are your essential or mandatory expenses? That's things like your utilities, your car payment, your mortgage, your insurance, you know, food and groceries. And the second factor is really the security of your monthly income or your spouse's income. But there's no one right number, right? It's not that it should be 10000 or it should be 100000 How much you need to have in your emergency fund or in cash is a function of your situation, your expenses. And yes, we recommend anywhere from three, six to 24 months, um, but that ultimately, again, depends on your the stability of your income and your expenses. So the more stable your income is, maybe you can be on the lower end of that, right? If you have a really secure job and you know it's, you know, that income isn't going anywhere, 
well, you don't need quite as much of a financial cushion. But it's also a function of of how close or far away you are from retirement. Because if you are really close to retirement, you may need to have closer to that 24 months of cash on hand because it will end up potentially being a supplemental income source for you in case you experience, let's say in retirement, you're living off of your investments and your investments are down in value. You know, you may want to switch over and start drawing off of your cash reserve, quote unquote, emergency fund during retirement just to reduce the strain that your income and the withdrawals are putting on your investments. I mentioned at the top of the show the recent turmoil in the bank sector and especially with the failure of uh, Signature Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, all of the turmoil with First Republic. Often when we think about where do we keep our cash, we think in the bank. And I'm wondering, has that answer changed? I mean, where do you keep your emergency fund? Yeah, I mean, there are more options than just the bank, right? The bank is one of potentially six areas that we would consider a good cash reserve or cash-like falling into that category. But the key is that where you're putting the money, um, so what you're utilizing is liquid, meaning you can get it out really quickly and it's super accessible, that it's short-term, you're not locking up your money in something for too long and you can't get to it when you need it, and that it's safe. But yes, we would still consider a savings account, a checking account to be good places to keep your cash reserve, but you have to remember the FDIC limits. And it's very specific to the titling of the account, the beneficiaries in the account, et cetera. We also like and recommend to our clients money market funds, for example, short-term treasury bills, uh, short-term CDs, certificates of deposit. And the last one is I-bonds as well. I-bonds are interesting. They got a ton of attention last year because inflation was way up and these bonds protect you from inflation. And if you're not familiar with how they work, you earn a fixed interest rate. This rate changes with inflation. It's reset twice a year based on inflation. It resets in April and November. And the most recent rate, which holds through April 30th, is 6.89%. So almost 7%, which is great. Right. I mean, it's a lot higher than what you're seeing in your bank account, certainly. And the rates have been great for the last couple of years. But there's a couple of caveats that I want people to understand about I-bonds. And we do recommend that if you're going to buy I-bonds, that you do so only once you already have 12 months of cash reserves. And the reason is that while I-bonds are technically a 30-year bond, you can redeem them after the first 12 months. But in that first 12 months, they're a liquid. So if you, you know, put all your money in I-bonds and then a month later you have an emergency, you can't get it back out. So you've got to make sure that you have enough to get you through that 12 months before you're going to start putting excess cash reserves into I-bonds. And additionally, another uh, thing to note about I-bonds is that if you redeem them in the first five years, you will also forfeit the interest for that quarter or the previous three months. And they're limited in terms of how much you can purchase and how you can purchase them. You you have to purchase them through treasurydirect.gov. That's the website of the U.S. Treasury. You're limited to $10,000 per calendar year per person, although 
in a slight hack, you can purchase another $5,000 in paper I-bonds if you do it by putting your federal income tax return to work. But if you want to boost the amount, you can also purchase I-bonds for kids under 18, for trusts, estates, corporations, partnerships, and other entities. So some people not only bought I-bonds when they were at their highs for themselves and their spouses, they bought it for their kids, they bought it for their business, and they were able to put some more money to work in that way. Um, if you want to learn how to use I-bonds in your cash management strategy, You can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call. Isabel and her colleagues will be happy to walk you through it. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Isabel, I'd love to dig into where not to hold your cash in these crazy times of bank failures and rising interest rates. Plus, we're going to be joined by a portfolio manager who will help us make a little more sense of what's going on with the banks. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Are you worried about the current volatility of the market, inflation rates, talk of a recession? Are you second-guessing your investment decisions? What better time than now to ensure your finances are moving forward than by getting an expert second opinion from an Edelman Financial Engines planner? Whether you already have a planner or simply need a new perspective, They can help you manage your wealth plan to both weather the volatility of the market today and help you protect and preserve it over the long term. To schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today, call 833-PLAN-EFE. That's 833-752-6333. Or visit their website at efewealthplanners.com. Put your uncertainties to rest once and for all. Schedule your complimentary wealth checkup right now. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. We are talking with financial planner Isabel Barrow about cash that asset class that your kids never seem to have and that you are sometimes liable to call trash, but other times king, like it's been recently. Before the break, Isabel, you talked to us about where to keep your cash, but where shouldn't we keep it? Where do we not want our cash reserves? Well, and to be clear, we're we're talking about the cash in your emergency fund, the money that you need, you know, for any unexpected expenses that could pop up and usually do. Um, And there are a lot of places that you should not keep your cash, but we'll just talk about the nine main investments where you should not keep your cash or not consider that a good place for your emergency fund. We'll start with treasury notes that are two to 10 years, just too long. Mm -hmm. Treasury bonds that mature in more than 10 years. EE savings bonds. These are all too illiquid in the short term for you to consider it to be cash-like or a good place for you to keep an emergency fund. When you say too illiquid, they all have maturities longer than a year, but your car or the AC could break down tomorrow and you might need the cash to fix it. That's the general idea, right? You don't keep your cash in investments with longer maturities. We're going to dig in with our portfolio manager on why exactly the banks did that. That's exactly right. And the same goes for bank CDs, or commercial paper with maturities longer than one year. So another area not to keep your cash, right? Don't buy a five-year CD for money that you're going to need in, you know, potentially in 10 minutes if, you know, something came up. Also, another one that comes up often is life insurance cash values. I think that people tend to think of that because it says 
cash in the name, they think of that as like an emergency fund. And and while yes, it's technically can be a cash equivalent, but there are potentially really significant surrender charges, tax risks and and other considerations. But, um, you know, I think a main one also is that you, with life insurance, you buy life insurance to cover your beneficiaries in the event of your passing. So if you tap into it, you're reducing your death benefit and that could have a pretty significant impact on your heirs and maybe your estate planning. How about annuities? Same goes for annuities, you know, no, no, because there are potentially penalties, taxes, surrender charges. And for all of those reasons, they should not be considered cash-like or good for cash reserves. And also another one that kind of seems cash-like but really isn't good for an emergency fund is TIPS. So that stands for Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And the reason is that they have also long maturities and therefore they can potentially go down in value if you have to sell them before maturity. And the last one is don't keep your money in cash in a stable value fund, right? So that's you typically within a 401k fund and it's called a, you know, they call it stable value fund or sometimes called GICs and they're insurance products. Um, And the reason is that typically, number one, it's potentially in a retirement account. So there could be tax implications to getting it out. But number two, there could be fees, there's underlying fees, and the bang may not be great for the buck. Interesting. So I-bonds are okay, but tips are not. Duration and liquidity. And again, I-bonds are only okay if we're talking about someone who has the 12 months already of cash reserve set aside. Noted. We got an email from a listener. It's relevant to today's show, so we're going to dig into it. If you've got a question for a financial planner, go to everydaywealth.com. Scroll down to the middle of the page. You'll see a light blue box. You can click on the button that says, ask a question, and just fill in your information and send it my way. Here is the question for today. My mom's bank manager suggested if we add ourselves as signers on her accounts, that it would increase her FDIC insurance to three times. That would be the mother and the letter writer and the letter writer's sibling. Not as owners, but as signers. I've been researching and I can't find anything to support that, including on the FDIC's own pages. I also thought that different types of accounts could go to $250,000 in insurance, but as far as I can tell, it's all types of accounts within a single bank by a single person get added up and insured to $250,000. So it looks like we have to move half of mom's money to another bank. Is that right? Isabel, the letter writer is absolutely correct. It's very confusing. Oh my gosh, it is so confusing. And, you know, I think it's there's also potentially like a little bit of an issue here in just understanding what the bank was trying to say, because I'm frankly confused about the idea that adding a signer would change the FDIC insurance, because that's not the case. Adding someone who is an authorized signer on your account doesn't change your FDIC insurance um, if they're not an owner, a joint owner or co-owner. But I think what probably the bank manager was actually referring to, or I hope they were referring to, is adding something called a POD. And POD stands for payable on death 
designation. And so that type of a designation adds, essentially, like an IRA has beneficiaries, this adds beneficiaries to your account, not a co-owner, but a beneficiary. And it, it essentially converts that individual account into this POD title that now follows FDIC trust rules, which are a little bit different, and they allow for up to $250,000 of coverage per person for up to five beneficiaries. So and actually, by adding this POD and adding, in her case, two beneficiaries, you know, that might actually increase her FDIC coverage to 750000 And for someone who had five beneficiaries, you know, it can be a maximum of $1.25 million in FDIC coverage by adding this POD and multiple beneficiaries without actually changing the ownership. So it, basically, it's adding $250,000 of coverage for each beneficiary you add. Now, it's important to note that the person or the people that you name as those POD beneficiaries, they inherit the account when you die. So, you know, make sure that this is worked into your estate plan and part of that as well and not just doing it for the FDIC coverage. But in her case, if they add the POD, she may not need to transfer all of her mom's money or maybe most of it could stay at that one bank and still have FDIC coverage. Very helpful. Just to get into one of the nuances that you mentioned, you said this is a type of revocable living trust. You don't need a living trust in order to do this, correct? No, that's right. It essentially um, allows the account to follow the trust rules. So the FDIC, and this is all, you know, on the FDIC website, you can look it up um, and, you know, confirm the information, obviously, with your bank when you set it up that you're going to have the coverage. But it doesn't entail you having to have any actual legal documents created by anything other than what the bank is giving you in the form of a POD form, right? So you're going to have to fill out the bank's forms to add the beneficiaries, but you don't have to go get your own legal documents on your own in order to get this extra FDIC coverage. Perfect. Since we are talking about cash and emergency savings and keeping your money safe, I actually want to bring the conversation to the situation with some of the banks. A few weeks ago, we heard about Silicon Valley Bank getting taken over by regulators, then Signature Bank, then Credit Suisse. What is going on? For perspective on all of this, we want to bring in one of the smart people from Edelman Financial Engines Investment Management. He's a portfolio manager and his name is Bill Tracy. Bill, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much. Glad to be here. Can you just give us a summary of how you're thinking about this whole situation and about the banks that have gone under? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, certainly if you're, you know, keeping up with uh, the financial news, um, you hear the term bank collapse, um, very easy to be, you know, scared uh, about that. You know, some of those kind of behavioral biases that we work to overcome as investors takes us right back to the uh, to the financial crisis when we hear that phrase. Um, you know, right now, it, it doesn't look like the problems that really affected Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank are, are really representative of the overall banking system. Um, you know, they had what are hopefully some relatively unique circumstances. You know, moving forward, uh, you know, the impact of it's been a, one of the most aggressive rate hiking cycles that uh, we, we've seen is going to continue to play out. But at least the response to the, the recent banking issues seems to show that, um, you know, regulators are, are a signal that they're willing to do what it takes to support banks and depositors. 
Let's talk for a second about um, SVB and Signature. Isabel and I have been having a conversation about where to keep your emergency cash. And one of the things that she said was that you don't tie up your short-term money, your emergency cash, your deposits in long-term instruments. And yet that was one of the problems that led to the downfalls of SVB and Signature. Can you explain yeah, uh, so those downfalls were certainly pretty uh, uh, rapid, right? I think the Silicon Valley situation seemed to play out uh, in the matter of just a couple of days. You know, they had an interesting client base, more focused on working with venture capital firms, startups. Over the last few years, um, those kind of customers had really plowed a bunch of money into the bank. I think their deposits jumped by almost 90% um, in 2021. And then, you know, last year, um, many of those kind of tech-related businesses stalled a bit. They needed to pull some of their deposits out to, uh, to keep on operating. And meanwhile, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, like we're just talking about, had invested a lot of its investment assets into long-term bonds. So as uh, bond prices were falling last year, you know, more than half of its assets were in treasuries, other kind of agency government bonds, above what a normal bank uh, would probably have in its investment portfolio. And so as those bond prices dropped, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was kind of forced to sell off some of those longer term investments at a loss um, to kind of cover those outflows. And that started to make other depositors uneasy. They got really nervous really fast, right? And there was essentially a run on deposits. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, then we saw some prominent names um, in the venture capital world kind of instruct some of the startups they work with to pull money out of the bank. And and that kind of uh, brought about the run. Um on Signature, you know, a, a sudden closure there as well. They had some big clients um, related to the crypto uh, industry uh, with some really sizable deposits. I think they had nearly, you know, 17 billion or so in, in crypto-related client deposits. And then as uh, crypto slumped last year, you know, they saw their deposit shrink. And, and again, other clients were kind of scared of what the potential impact could be on their money. And, and they faced a, a run as well. So I guess the big question is, should people be worried? Should our listeners be worried about the banks that are holding their money, the credit unions that are holding their money? Is the system strong enough to withstand this? Yeah, you know, in general, um, probably um, not going to have to worry, right? Especially if you're one of those, um, you know, so-called what they're systematically important financial institutions are probably more informally the, the two big to fails like uh, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, right? Um, I've actually seen a, a good chunk of money kind of rotate out of some of the smaller banks and into those larger ones in response to these issues. Um, you know, but really there's what some 4,700 or so FDIC insured banks. So a lot of people are with those smaller regional banks, um, you know, what it's important to understand there is that uh, you know, most likely they're not going to be in a similar position to Silicon Valley or Signature. They're going to have, um, you know, a more diverse depositor base that's not concentrated in one particular industry. I've read a lot of coverage suggesting that moving all of your money to one of the too big to fail banks is actually not so good for society overall, that we need the diversity of institutions. And that, in fact, when it comes to the sort of service and personal attention that small businesses in particular need, the small businesses that are really the backbone of our economy, they're going to get that from 
the credit unions in their area. They're going to get that from the small community banks. Isabel, you want to jump in? You you look like you have something to say. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, it's such a catch-22 for the small regional banks, right? Because on one hand, in order to entice customers, they have to have good rates, right? They've got to have these great savings rates or great CD rates. So, you know, in order to get somebody to come down the street and work with your regional bank instead of going to the J.P. Morgan or the Bank of America or City, they have to take more risk in their bonds, right? They have to go out longer on the bonds to get the higher interest rates. So they've been sort of forced into this situation, the scenario where they've got to take a little bit more risk on their balance sheets in order to get customers. But then on the other hand, now with interest rates going up, it's caused them to have to now face the music with, you know, dealing with that risk and the losses on their balance sheet and then the fear that customers are going to be leaving them. So, you know, you have to remember the FDIC insurance is there for a reason. So if you get $250,000 or less at a small regional bank, I don't see any reason to rush to go to a J.P. Morgan or a Bank of America unless you really want to. How about for investors, Bill? I mean, given all this uncertainty in the news and and the worry that it's causing, are you selling the bank stocks and the portfolios that you manage for clients? Are you handling these investments any differently? Yeah, you know, certainly, um, you know, when there's a, a market moving event like the Silicon Valley situation, um, or say it seems everybody's kind of calling for a recession, really easy to think that you can't stand still. You know, you feel like you really need to do something with your investments. You have to rotate into a different sector, move to cash, just do something and take some sort of action. Um, you know, I think it's often the case that those emotional decisions don't really work out uh, in our favor. You know, kind of cliche for a reason, but diversification reduces the the impact that uh, you know any one individual company is going to have on our our investments. Um, you know, some of the funds that we invest in definitely held positions in Silicon Valley Bank, um, our signature bank. Uh, you know, is is quite small though in relation to the overall portfolio. And I think you know, really, when it when it comes down to it, you know, how you're invested today should should really be in a, a portfolio that you'd be kind of comfortable sticking with through either a bear market or a bull market, right? To avoid kind of putting yourself in a position where emotions can get the best of you. So let's go back to the question that I have been asking all show. As an asset class, is cash trash or is cash king? I think you've got some data actually to objectively answer that. Yeah, right. Is cash trash or king? Uh, the answer is yes, right? I mean, with any asset class, <laughs> it's going to be uh, yeah, yeah. Right. It's either uh, it's going to be either, right? Depending on how markets are really behaving at any given time. Um, Kind of looking at uh, you know how we invest across like, 16 or so different asset classes like U.S. stocks, bonds, foreign stocks, um, you know like different styles, value growth, different cap sizes, mid and small, cash equivalents, short-term bonds are going to be you know part of that group, and like any other, they're going to have their own kind of characteristics and performance history. Um, was definitely king last year for sure. Uh, both the stock and bond markets kind of getting hit pretty hard. Um, really kind of became the only place to hide. Uh, but other years when markets were, you know, more positive in general, um, 2017, 2019, it was uh, at the bottom of the pack. And this year? Uh, yeah. So this year it's, um, you know, moved back down towards the bottom, right? Holding up a little better than in some of the other areas of the stock market, like uh, small caps, where actually, uh, you know, that's got a, a, some of the more regional bank exposure is within um, small cap funds. Um, but it's still cash lagging most other asset classes. And it's really been kind of fairly typical, right, for the last decade or so. On average, if you had to rank those different 16 asset classes each year, cash on average was a tenth out of 16, right? So, you know, it's been a period of very short 
uh, low low short term yields uh, by and large has played a role in that relative ranking, but but still um, this year looking a, a little bit more like uh, some of those previous years. I think I know the answer to this next question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. What do you tell clients who want to sell all their stocks, all their bonds, and just go to cash, given some of the uncertainty and some of the worry? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think what we'd say is unless your timing is excellent, and that's usually not the case, it's probably not going to be in, in one's best interest to make a wholesale uh, decision like that, right? Um, we actually looked at, uh, at some scenarios around moving to cash. Um, from a, a 60-40 stock and bond blended benchmark and, and looked at scenarios moving to cash after it had already dropped 20% um, during the financial crisis to kind of see you know, how investors might have reacted. And you know, if you move to cash and, and just stayed out for the entire period, those years of zero interest rate policy, you know, of course, that was the, the worst end result. Um, you know, reinvesting after uh, three years on the sidelines and then staying invested – that would have taken your initial $100,000 up to um, essentially doubled. Um, you know, jumping back in sooner, say after a year, um, led to, to better results. And if you were able to stick to your guns and just stay with a 60-40 portfolio, let's say, for the entire time? Yeah, probably not a, a surprise, the answer here, right? That ended up being the, uh, the best result in the end. Um, you know, we actually, we also looked at uh, rolling one-year returns of, uh, of that same kind of 60-40 blended benchmark of stocks and bonds going all the way back to the 1920s. Um, you know, that kind of incorporates a different a number of different interest rate environments, not just the more recent ZERP years. Um, what we found looking at that data was that those periods when cash outperforms do tend to be relatively short term. Um, you know, the, the, the invested portfolio showed better results 70% of the time on those rolling one year periods. And if you look at the uh, inflation adjusted returns, um, the annual return on that 60-40, about 6% compared to the 0.3% or so for 30 day treasury bills, which are often seen as a, a cash equivalent. Just further information that proves once again that timing the market doesn't work. We like to talk about how it's time in the market, not timing the market. Anything else to add as you're sort of piling on to the case for staying invested here? Uh, yeah, I mean, as you and uh, Isabel touched on earlier, right? Control what you can control. Build up your emergency savings. Um, you know, for some investors that might have lower risk tolerances, incorporating some short-term bonds or cash equivalents in, into your investment strategy makes sense. But uh, you know, for many others, holding on to excess cash is probably going to end up being a, a headwind to, to reaching your long-term goals. Thank you so much, Bill, for those insights. Isabel, as we wrap, just a question here. I've seen statistics, um, BlackRock statistics, that show that women keep about 71% of their assets in cash compared with about 60% for men. Um, And it's too much, right, for many people in many scenarios, knowing that not everybody has the same financial scenario. But what do you say to your clients who are more risk-averse about this need to stay continually invested? Well, I think, you know, you have to understand, number one, maybe what the emotional rationale is behind it. Uh, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the bag lady syndrome. You know, you have that cash because you're afraid of someday, you know, all of your assets implode and you're going to be living on the street and you need money to get by. So that emergency fund is just that safety net. It's an emotional safety net in addition to it being a financial safety net. But the reality is, is that like everything, you don't want to have all your money concentrated in one place. You know, you don't want to have all of your money 
in real estate. You don't want to have all of your money in the stock market or all of your money in the bond market or, or, or all of your money in cash or the vast majority of your money in cash. So once you've reached your emergency fund goal, you really need to think about making that cash more efficient. You've got to think about how can I make that money work for me a little bit harder? You want to think about that, okay, even if you're making 5% on your cash in the bank, What's inflation doing to erode that purchasing power? So are you actually losing money on a regular basis, even though you think you're doing okay? So it's it's always a matter of, you know, be diversified. Don't keep all of your eggs in one basket because ultimately you're creating for yourself the risk that you're afraid of, right? That money isn't going to be growing for you over the long term. So if in 10 or 15 or 20 years, you've got a major issue, you need that money to be worth more. You need it to have kept up with inflation. And if it's just sitting in the bank, it's not going to be doing that. So, you know, again, as with everything, diversify, focus in the long term, and try to keep only what you need to have in cash in cash and invest the rest according to your time frame, your age, your risk tolerance, and all of the other factors. But, you know, cash is probably not the right place for 70 plus percent of your assets. And if you're listening to this show and you'd like to hear more about money management with a woman's perspective, I hope that you'll check out my other podcast. It is called Her Money. Once again, Bill, thanks for sharing your insights. Isabel, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. If you've got a question for a financial planner on taxes, retirement, income, estate planning, insurance, or pretty much anything, just send it to us. Go to everydaywealth.com, scroll down, look for the blue Ask a Question button, click on it, type in your info, and send it my way. And thank you so much for listening to us today. Be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcasts, or just visit everydaywealth.com where all of our episodes are available to you. Thanks so much for being here and we'll talk soon. You've been listening to Edelman Financial Engines Everyday Wealth with Gene Chatsky. Edelman Financial Engines has been ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. If you've missed an episode or are interested in additional personal finance topics, be sure to subscribe to the Everyday Wealth Podcast. Our podcast library offers helpful insights on topics such as tax-efficient portfolios, retirement withdrawal strategies, investing, and financial planning, to name just a few. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com, or find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.